0: Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas with a simple goal of following Jesus together, and we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Thank you. That was beautiful, and now I'll be following that up with a really fun scripture, Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. Thank you, Mark. Um, This is Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 through 13. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do whatever you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. This is the word of the Lord.
1: I like how you guys said thanks be to God as if there's a question mark in there. It's great. I want to begin this morning with doing something a little bit odd. We're going to have an experiment, and it's been a couple years since we've done this, so some of you guys have already uh, helped me with this in the past, and if so, I'm going to have you guys do something a little bit different as well. So we are going to show a video, and this is a psychology experiment that's been done many times, and I think it's really helpful for us to, uh, to make us aware of something that we're going to be talking about today. So I'm going to show a video of a bunch of people, some wearing white shirts and some wearing black t-shirts, and they're going to be passing basketballs to one another. Um, anyone here seeing this video and taking part of this experiment? If so, could y'all stand up and move to the outside? So everyone sitting has not seen this experiment before, and you're going to need a good view of the TV. Okay, so I'd like for this side of the room, you guys are my white t-shirt people, okay? In this video, will be maybe around three or so people wearing white t-shirts and they'd be passing a basketball to one another. Your job is to count how many times they catch a pass. You guys are my black t-shirt people. So you guys will be looking not at the people with white t-shirts, but only people with black t-shirts and counting how many times they catch a pass. Okay, we're going to show this video. It's going to start quickly. You have to keep count. And remember, keep quiet. You can't you don't sound out the number or say anything else, okay? Just focus on your job. Okay. Now, you guys are my white T-shirt people, right? Okay, so let me hear, what's your number? 14, 15, do I hear any higher? 16, do I hear $1? No. Interesting, okay. Black T-shirt people, how many times? 16, 14, 14. 21, strong, 18. 18. Okay, now everybody stand up and I want you guys to sit down if you saw a gorilla. Sit down if you saw the gorilla. Okay, great, so don't move. You're not shamed or anything like that. Okay, interesting. All my people on the outside, don't, isn't this interesting? So you guys are like, what gorilla, right? Courtney was perceptive. We have some other people perceptive, very nice. Luke didn't see it. Okay, we're gonna watch, we're gonna watch this video again, and guys, I promise that there is a gorilla that walks, not, doesn't just walk across the screen, but stops, beats their chest, and keeps moving. You guys, I'm not gonna show you a different video. It's the same video. Okay, let's see it. Now, notice on the right hand of the screen, right about now, enters a gorilla, yep, doesn't run across the stream screen, but stops, beat their chest. <laughs> Look how embarrassed they all sat down. They all sat down. What in the world? So we all can make our way to our seat, please. Thank you very much. Do we find this interesting that it was a majority of you guys, a majority you guys didn't see the gorilla and just a handful of y'all didn't see the gorilla what makes the difference how come so many other people over here missed it while so many people over here they saw it you're focusing on white shirts what else you were counting you were busy you're busy counting something by the way I know some of you guys who are more type a you're like but what was the number did I get it right (laughs) right you didn't I don't care about that thing. I want to know I'm right, which is interesting. Why else? Why else did y'all, majority of you guys, miss the gorilla and some of y'all did? Yeah, you were ignoring everything that was on that screen that looked like it was wearing a black t-shirt. So this, uh, for the psychology experiment, as well as, I think, a spiritual matter, just a life matter, it reveals something. That is this quote up here, what we focus on determines what we miss. And so by the reality that you, you all, you were focused on just the people wearing white t-shirts, you were dismissing anything that had that same kind of image on that screen. Meanwhile, you guys were focused on anything uh, with white or opposite with black t-shirts, so all of a sudden something walks in the screen that similar to what you were looking for, and you caught it. This there is a spiritual dimension to me for this conversation because oftentimes in our religious life, oftentimes in our churches, we focus on something either because we were taught to focus on it, it was a part of our rearing, or maybe we're even counting. We're like, we want to be right, and we miss the more important thing. So this week and next, we are going to continue our conversation around our third way. Culture around the topic of sexuality, and I think on the passage that we had today, what we are going to learn is that there oftentimes we have been taught to focus on the wrong thing now this morning i 'm going to speak through this really really difficult passage, one that i 've never preached on, and most likely will never preach again from <laughs> Has anyone ever heard a sermon from the Sodom and Gomorrah story? I mean, not likely. People have come up today, they're like, are you feeling okay? Are you nervous? And I was like, I'm fine. And then I went to the restroom, and I have pit stains. I don't know if I'm fine. (laughs) I don't know. I thought I was good, but my body's like, hold up. Hold up. You know, this is, like, honestly one of my least favorite stories in all of Scripture for several reasons, but I think... It's healthy for us to come to God's Word in sometimes the more troubling passages. It's like a meal that you know is nutritious, but you don't want to eat. So here we are at this bowl of uncooked kale. Let's sprinkle some wheat germ on it and dig in. I've included this passage for this series for a couple different reasons, but one of them is the way in which this story has traditionally been used the way in which we have been taught to focus on this story, for me, gives a cautionary warning about how we, can, how we can treat Scripture. Why? Because we have been taught to focus on counting basketballs and we missed a gorilla walking across the screen. The way in which the church has been use, using this story most, most of, uh, of our lives is through uh, this idea of a cautionary tale against homosexuality for why why was what what is the sin of sodom well tragically we have said it's about homosexuality and that has been reinforced through this word sodomy or to sodomize obviously uh, pulled from this story after research and study and prayer i would argue that this story and the sin of sodom is actually not connected to a conversation around same-gendered attraction or practice. It's actually pointing to something else. We can have conversations at other parts of Scripture that talk about homosexuality. I just would, I would uh, suggest not this one, because there is a gorilla in this story that we have missed. As with Scripture, to get the most out of this passage, we need to look at the bigger context. So where is this story in the bigger context? Uh, context of scripture. Well, this is in the book of Genesis. so the very beginning of our scripture. And this is picking up right after God had chosen one person, Abraham, to be the father of a nation. And so God chose Abraham and blessed him and his wife, Sarah. And they were chosen to be a great nation. But oftentimes with God, God gives this promise and this blessing. And God is really bad at timing. Because there is a huge gap of time between when the blessing and promise is given and when this comes, this comes to fruition. Does anyone else feel like God at times has really bad timing? Like, I'm ready. How about now? I feel like I've learned my lesson. I'm ready. And God says, wait, which we love to wait. And so in Genesis 18, we have Abraham is getting old. Sarah is getting old. And three men show up. Now, these three men are like the manifestation of God and angels. And so, when they show up, it's not really clear if Abraham knows who they are, if they are some sacred, divine visitors or not. We don't really know that in this story. It's not really clear. But what Abraham does in response to them showing up is this display of lavish generosity and hospitality. Abraham sees them hurries to welcome them. He bows down before them, gives them water for cleansing, a place of rest, provides them a meal to renew. This is a demonstration of Abraham's posture of hospitality, extravagant hospitality. And because of that, Abraham receives a blessing. Though they were old and without children, they were promised to have a child within the year. And I love this part. When Sarah hears this, Sarah and Abraham hear this, she begins to laugh. And this annoyed God. So God said, Sarah, are you laughing? And she said, no. And God said, yeah, you are. And she's like, no, I'm not. And I love that part of Scripture because I, like, I can relate because I have, maybe like you, maybe you have a best friend, a spouse, a partner who laughs at the most inappropriate time and then denies that they did so. Like, for instance, when somebody uh, falls down the attic ladder and tumbles down, and they see their wife up in the attic laughing at them. (laughs) You know, I can relate to this. And so God and Sarah, they kind of have this wrestling match. But it's clear that the hospitality that Abraham and Sarah offer these outsiders, it moved God. Like, it meant dearly to God that this took place. But then God turns towards Sodom, and Abraham wonders why. And uh, God says to Abraham, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. And Abraham is concerned about this why? Because he has a nephew that lives in Sodom. And so he begins to be concerned about that. And, and we don't have time to get in there, but then Abraham and God have this negotiation around, but what if there's like 50 faithful people there? Will you spare the city? Yeah, fine, I'll relent. What about 45? What about 40? And it just keeps going down and down. And so they have this, this conversation. But then the next chapter, which is where our scripture reading began, um, we see that these angels show up at the city gate and abraham's nephew lot he is there seeming like it seems like he's waiting for them almost like he was warned maybe that he was warned by abraham or somehow else but he is waiting to uh, host them to offer that hospitality in the same the family tradition so lot bows down before these angels offers to host them at his house for the night But the angels, they want to spend the night in the town square. Why? They want to see if it's as bad as they have heard. And this is what happens. But Lot, he insisted so strongly that they did did go with him and enter his house. He prepared a meal for them, breaking bed without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Well, that accelerated quickly. What in the world is this about? Well, first off, I think it's important to notice who are the men for which they are there? Who are the men that showed up on the house that evening? And we find in Scripture, it is all the men. All of the men of every part of the city. This isn't just a couple bad apples. It's not just a couple men. It's not a small percentage of those who have this same-sex attraction. It's a collection of every single man, young and old, from all parts of the city. They seem to have unity. (laughs) And I can find, like, there are few things to get men rallied together around than a common enemy and every man in the city show up. And because it was every single man, we can assume that they were not there there due to their orientation or a sense of attraction. The mob gathered that evening, hungry with violence, suspicion, with a tribal-formed hatred. Sex was in their culture, and tragically so with us. Still, oftentimes today, sex can be a weapon to deploy dominance, and power. For those who read The Kite Runner, there is a a scene in there that kind of reminds us that this tradition still exists, not only in that culture, but in our culture as well, where you can see an expression of this tradition. But in this story, word got out that these two strangers had shown up. And it seems as if Sodom has a disdain for outsiders. There's a suspicion from those who aren't a part of us. For those who are on not not inside the fencing of our culture. And sadly, because they were foreigners and travelers, or even maybe potentially refugees, maybe that's how they were seen, they were highly vulnerable. And these men enacted what evil does to vulnerability. Evil exploits vulnerability. And so that's what happened here. Sometimes with scripture, it seems as if the author does something subtle to help us go deeper into the reading of different stories. I believe on this passage that the writer of Genesis is doing something like a juxtaposition between Genesis 18 and Genesis 19 from the extravagant hospitality that we saw with Abraham and Sarah, the honor and the dignity that they gave these strangers, that is compared to now the exploitation, the violence, the hatred that we see that's being provoked in Sodom. And we have this juxtaposition between these two different stories. And what we will also see is that because of the radical hospitality that Abraham and Sarah gave, they receive a blessing. And because of the violence and the disdain that Sodom has, they receive something very different than a blessing Now, if we don't like this story, we didn't like this part, it just got worse. What was Lot's idea to protect his two divine guests? Well, take my daughters. Do whatever you want to with them. We need to see the culture that we find Scripture written from, a culture that disdains and dehumanizes women in that culture. By the way, does Scripture ever condemn what Lot did to his daughters? No. It just moved right along. This was embedded in a culture very different from ours, in one in which we need to read the gospel, shine the light of gospel truth into stories like this, because we can see the tragic view of the expendability of women in that culture. But this crowd would not be dissuaded. Their focus was on the foreigners, and at that point, the angels, they had seen enough. The verdict was done. They struck all the men with blindness, and because of a conversation that happened with Abraham, they gave this instruction to Lot. Lot, get your family and run. Flee from here. Do not slowly go run and take everyone with you. And so that's what they do. They run and run, and while they're running, God rains down on Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and sulfur, and they kill Everyone in that city. And to make this weird story even weirder, Lot's wife, as she's running, decides to turn around and see it, and she becomes a pillar of salt, which, of course, you know, happens. (laughs) It's such an odd story. And so, like many of you have asked, maybe you're thinking it now, why are we talking about this? Well, I believe we must ask the question, what prompted the judgment of God? What was it that prompted what we want to see as a gracious, loving God with this kind of drastic judgment? Was it homosexual practice in general, which is what we traditionally have been taught? Was it a failure to observe hospitality and care? Was it persistent oppression and violence? Was it a threat of rape and possible murder that inflamed the sodomite men? Is that what prompted the judgment of God? It's my conviction that the use of this story to condemn same-gendered, monogamous sex and gay orientation is simply a misapplication and a misreading of this story. Why? Because many evangelicals circles that, in which I grew up and I'm, and I'm grateful for, the story of Sodom and the subsequent judgment has been minimized to judge all homosexual practice. I cracked open the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. Don't ask me why it's in my library, but I was curious what it read uh, when I looked up the word uh, here uh, around homosexuality. I cracked up that, that term, which is interesting. It's like the churches is the only group that's still using the word homosexuality. But uh, I cracked open that term, and and I found this: traditionally, homosexuality was the sin for which Sodom was destroyed by divine judgment. Hence, the popular term sodomy. So, I wholeheartedly and I humbly disagree with that interpretation, that reading, because it's clear it's clear that the city of Sodom and even Lot's family they have a distorted view of sex. This is displayed not only with Lot's willingness to give his daughters over in that situation, but later in that chapter, not that far from here, we find a, 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 a moment of incest between Lot and his daughters. So clearly there's sexual confusion. There's a misunderstanding of the purpose of sex. But to use this story as a proof text against homosexuality, i find to be a damaging stretch that many of us have been taught. If nothing else, why not talk about the sin of rape? or sexual violence. But I don't even think that gets at the heart of the sin of Sodom. Why can I say that with kind of conviction and boldness? Well, every time you find the story of Sodom and Gomorrah referenced within the Bible, it never mentions same-gendered attraction. For instance, it's, every time it's been used, it's, it's, it's used to talk about exploiting the vulnerable, having unrepentant hearts, disregarding God's messengers. For instance, this is in Ezekiel 16. There's, I think, four different references to Sodom and Gomorrah's story in Scripture outside of Genesis 19. This is an example of it. Uh, Ezekiel 16. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. That that use of the word daughters is just talking about the nation. I know that's a little confusing. But uh, the sin of your sister Sodom She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and they did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. Did you notice what is the sin of Sodom? Exploiting the vulnerable. It's about being unconcerned and overfed, about turning life towards yourself and not using it to care for others. There is even a moment where Jesus references Sodom and Gomorrah. This is in Matthew 10. Uh, Instead of sending angelic messengers into this world, Jesus sent out his disciples to be visitors and guests to outside communities. And Jesus said this, "'If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. I tell you, truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the Day of Judgment than for that town.'" Jesus is using this as this idea of being rejected as God's messengers, and is saying that this is the same thing as Sodom. My point is that Scripture uh, did make the focus um, did not make the focus on homosexual practices from this story. What I believe is the most consistent that we find in Scripture as we study this is that is the sin and rejection, the mistreatment of outsiders and the vulnerable. That, for me, is what I believe the sin of Sodom to be. It was displayed in illicit sexual activity, but that's not the heart of it. But the second reason why I wanted us to be in this difficult passage is because underneath uh, underneath this uh, difficult story is a needed message for you and me. There is a redemptive instruction that's embedded in this story back to the gorilla video, F- focusing on the sexual aspect of the story is like counting the basketball passes. Okay, that's fine, but what is the gorilla walking across the stream? What is, what is the deeper meaning for you and I that we can focus on to make sure we don't miss the more important thing? If indeed the sin of Sodom is not homosexual practices or expression, but is the exploitation of outsiders and, and those who are vulnerable, we must consider who are those who are desperate for refuge and home in our culture and in our day-to-day. Who is looking for hope? Who is desperate for healing? I would argue that among many different groups and populations who are weary travelers through this world, vulnerable and often desperate for protection, I believe that the gay community is one of them oftentimes rejected and isolated, oftentimes kicked out of spaces of belongings, there are individuals who I've had the privilege to walk with, I'm sure you know, that they have shown up to church looking for some hope. And what kind of welcome has the church given our brothers and our sisters? If the story's juxtaposition between Abraham and Sodom, uh, if that's to provoke us a question, a provoke a question of what is the idea of hospitality and God's, God's faithful people, how do we handle hospitality? We come to this story and we are begged a question, which is our church more like? Is our churches more like Abraham and Sarah when we see the vulnerable outsider? Do we bow down before them seeing the image of God that is within their souls and their bodies? Do we care for them? Do we provide for them? Do we give them refuge and rest? a place of healing and hope? Or has the church been more like Sodom, who sees outsiders with suspicion, with disdain, with judgment? Have we enacted violence upon this community, violence through words of shame and condemnation, violence through reparative therapy, violence through banishment and spiritual abuse, and all this violence underneath the name of God? Regardless of our view of our of sexuality, whether we're traditional and affirming, and I love that our community has both uh, both perspectives, regardless, I think that we all can agree that the church can do better. I think we all can put our hand in the middle and say that we can do better than what we have done. I believe our third-way posture focuses on a needed shift in this dialogue, a needed shift on Principles of truth and falsehood, which I think we can still have, but where the shift also takes place is this posture that we have can make space for radical hospitality, especially for those who've been marginalized, especially those who are vulnerable. Hospitality is something that is key for a church who wants to follow a third-way posture with one another. So I want to close by talking to two particular groups of people in this room. First, I want to talk to my friends who hold a traditional view of marriage and sexuality. I just want to just publicly honor you. I want to clearly say that many of you have held your view with a posture of love and respect and empathy and deference. I have seen you hold your convictions and have done so without fostering violence and disdain. And I just want to just say I'm, clear, I'm not labeling all traditionally minded people uh, as people of Sodom. Even recently, I've in conversations with many of you, and you, even though you hold a traditional point of view, you've expressed gratitude, like deep, deep gratitude and excitement for seeing how our church has been a place where people from the LGBTQ community have now felt included, and that you've loved being a part of this community with diversity. And for me, that's a third way posture to the T, that you have longed for this place to be a place of inclusion while you also humbly hold your points of view. And I know that you long to go not only to tolerance but beyond tolerance to provide a space of inclusion. I just want to say I'm grateful for you. I just want you to know that. Secondly, the other group of people I want to talk to are those who are part of the LGBTQ community. Um, I just want to say that uh, I am grateful and thankful that you're here. We would not be the same church without you. Jen and I lead a small group. We meet on Tuesday nights, and it's mostly people in their late 20s and early 30s, and they stay over to our home later than we ever hang out with anyone else in our life. Which I've loved, we get to feel young a little bit. Uh, at our first meeting, I asked the question. I said, um, "This kind of a churchy small group introduction." I said, why, "Why did you sign up for the small group?" So we went around, and people answered the question the typical way. I want to study Scripture. I'm looking for community. I want to get to know the church. I want to connect to the church a little bit more. And then it went to one person. And then he, like, slipped into a storytelling moment, which at first I didn't know what to do with. I was like, okay, so this might be an odd person in our group who doesn't answer questions and takes it in different directions. Cool. This will be fun for our small group. But he began to talk about an experience that he had. He, uh, work made him travel to the Philippines, and he... Uh, Lived there in this condo type situation, and every day he would go down to the lobby, he would have his coffee, he would read a little bit on this couch in the lobby, and that was kind of his place. And then one day, uh, someone walked up to him, punched him in the face, and called him, him an ex, uh, expl- expletive about being a foreigner. This obviously was really disorienting, it's confusing, it was alarming. And he left just unsure, like this place that was taken from him. Later on, he was processing it with a social worker, and she encouraged him to do something. When he felt ready, he should go back to that couch. When he felt ready, he should sit down where he usually sat down, and he needed to do so to reclaim that space. And so when he felt ready, that's what he did. And then he talked about how he recently came out. And he came out to his friends and his family. And one of the most painful parts of that experience was the response that his church group, his small group, what they did and the sense of rejection and all of a sudden how the conversation flipped and he felt like he was on the outside. And then he looked at this room of mostly strangers and he said, I'm here tonight to reclaim this space. I know that my friend... It's not alone in this experience. I know for many people of the gay community that to come to church spaces like this forces you to confront some real pain and real wounds. And I just want you to know I am so proud of you. I'm just so proud of you. I hope and pray that you have experienced true hospitality in and through our community. I hope that you experience welcome, love, and belonging here. And I want to extend you a thought, an odd thought from the scripture that I find um, weirdly comforting in this story. If you can find anything comforting in this story, I find this comforting. And I want to share this with you and for us as a church as well. Did you notice the explanation for why the angels were sent to Sodom and Gomorrah? Why they were there? This is why. This is right after they had seen enough. They said to Lot, said, get your family out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. What compelled God to act? God was listening to the cries for justice and protection. This is so important to know that God is, was not and is not deaf or apathetic to the suffering of this world he's not too preoccupied and busy to not be to be provoked by desperate pleas for compassion and mercy and justice our god is a god who hears every tear-soaked prayer for help god hears it and is provoked out of compassion The weird thing in this story is that the vengeance of God displays something paradoxical. The vengeance of God displays God's absolute passion for mercy, for justice. God hears the cries of the vulnerable, wounded, isolated, and scarred, and God does something about it. For all of us, I know that some of us have wondered if God cares. We've wondered if our prayers are heard or if they're just falling on deaf ears. God sees you. God hears you. God sees us when we're on our last rope, when God hears us when our cries and our pleas are for care and provision, for love. And how does God respond? Well, most clearly how God responds is by sending Jesus to us. God sent Jesus not to demolish the city, God didn't solve violence with more violence. God responded by sending Jesus, who came to us as a suffering Savior, full of compassion, full of solidarity with us. Jesus would become the outsider who was afflicted with violence and disdain, maybe, if nothing else, to show that the cycle of violence ends with him, as we are praying for one day it does. But God does God wants more than just to send us solidarity. God's plan was more than just sending us Jesus, that Jesus' desire was to send us the Spirit. When the our cries are heard by, by God, the Spirit is given to us. The Spirit who is a constant companion, a refuge, an advocate to empower us when we feel weak and afflicted. And when we run out of words to pray, the Spirit is at work and deep inside of us, groaning with us, praying with us, alongside of us and that is with you now that's what god wants to provide for you but that's not the only thing that god wants to provide to this world when the cries have been heard by god god longs to send one last thing one last thing sent to the marginalized the suffering the afflicted and what is that last provision us the church And this question remains for us. Have we been that for this world? Have we been the demonstration with the tears and the pleas and the cries of this world to find some hope? Have we been that refuge? Have we been the outpost of the kingdom of God in this world? For better or worse, we are the response from God's longing for justice and mercy in this world. God, full of compassion, has sent me and you, has sent the Vine, has sent churches all around this world to be a place of radical hospitality. My prayer for our church, the Vine, is that our third-way posture that we have can create a space where we can become a refuge, a place of healing, of radical hospitality and restoration. And we will do that when we choose to not focus on the wrong thing, but when we place our eyes on Jesus, who is our author and our perfecter of our faith, and we become the church that God's passion and longing wants us to be. So may we be that for each other. May we be that for this world.
0: We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about the vine, get connected to our community or contribute financially to the vines ministry go to our website at thevineaustin.org